everyone. Welcome to episode 44 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. So this week, we're going to dive straight into our usual roundup of fixes and updates for the week. I'm going to go into some detail on some vulnerabilities in uh, the KDE frameworks, uh, LibreOffice, uh, Nova, Cups, and Z Standard, just to name a few. And then Joe and I are going to have a chat about a recent Webmin backdoor that was disclosed at DEF CON uh, just a few weeks ago. All right, so let's get into it. So this week, there were 21 Unix CVEs that the team addressed in the supported Ubuntu releases. The first one I want to have a look at was in uh, the KDE desktop. In particular, two different packages, uh, kconfig and the KDE libraries, uh, were affected by this. Uh, the first one was uh, directory traversal in the k-archive. So if you're using KDE to decompress uh, archives, it could have uh, had this floor where essentially if the archive contained uh, relative paths, say like dot dot slash to somewhere else, it would happily extract those files and they would end up outside of your working directory. So yeah, that's been fixed. And the other one was this uh, remote code execution via malicious desktop files. So uh, you might be aware that uh, there is the desktop spec from the XDG uh, working group and it describes essentially what a desktop file should look like. And these are the things that describes the launchers that you use. So it might have, say, the name of the application, an icon for it, and most importantly, the command to actually run when it's launched. And uh, the KDE developers added some extra functionality a long time ago where you could include uh, shell directories in that. So you could actually have, say, shell commands in there that would get evaluated. And that might be useful, I suppose, if you wanted to programmatically have something happen or if you you know, weren't sure where something lived on the file system and you can kind of probe it. But uh, yeah, as you can imagine, that then allows uh, code execution as a result. So you could craft a desktop file that in particular had an icon set that had uh, shell directives in it. And so it would, uh, without you even having to you know, launch the desktop uh, file or launch the application that it points to, you would just have to view that with, say, the Dolphin uh, file manager, which is the uh, standard KDE uh, file manager. And it would, by trying to you know, look up the icon for that, would go and execute those shell commands. So yeah, that has now been fixed. Upstream have essentially removed this feature and we've included that fix now uh, for the supported Ubuntu releases, which are Xenial, Bionic, and Disco. Next up, I want to look at an update for LibreOffice, uh, also for Xenial, Bionic, and Disco. Three different CVEs here that were fixed. Uh, the first of these, similar to some uh, that I actually discussed back in episode 40, uh, where documents can have uh, macros and scripts, which uh, can be executed on various actions, things like opening of the document or mouse over of links, that kind of stuff. And these are intended to only point to, say, libraries that are shipped with LibreOffice itself. However, uh, previously it had been found uh, back in 2018 that this was able to be bypassed. You could bypass the paths for this. So you could essentially say ship with your document uh, extra code to be executed and get that executed when someone opens it. And again, that had been uh, someone had discovered that whatever protections had been put in place then could also be still be bypassed by URL encoding the paths. So that's also been fixed now, uh, hopefully for the last time. Talking about vulnerabilities, though, that uh, were fixed in the past and have uh, come back again, uh, there was the second one in here, which is in the Libre logo component. Uh, as I said, I talked about this back in episode 40. So this was, uh, it's a component of LibreOffice, which is like a vector graphics program. And uh, you were able to, again, 
bypass protections in that to execute arbitrary code. Uh, this was fixed upstream, but those fixes were found to be inadequate. And so, yeah, we've got uh, not just one, but two CVEs for this issue because the, the first time round, uh, the fixes were inadequate. So this second time round, uh, there are fixes as well. Uh, hopefully this is the last we'll see of that but uh, yeah these url type encoding things have a, a habit of coming back so i guess we'll wait and see uh, we've got an update for open ldap so i discussed this back in episode 41 for the regular releases uh, this time we have now got the updates for our extended security maintenance releases that's precise extended security maintenance and trusty extended security maintenance or 1204 and 1404 esm two CVEs uh, that were fixed for OpenLDAP. And if you want more details, uh, episode 41 has all the details on those vulnerabilities. We've also got an update for Docker. So one CVE that was fixed for the Docker credentials helper package in Disco and for the Docker package itself in Xenial, uh, Bionic and Disco. So essentially this was in a component, uh, the Golang Docker credentials library. This is a separate package in Disco, but not in the other releases. It's actually embedded in uh, the Docker package itself. That's why this affects both of those. And it had essentially just a double free that could be triggered by a, via a local user. So you could essentially crash uh, the credentials part of Docker. And so, yeah, that's been updated now for all those packages. Next up, I've got an update to talk about in Nova, uh, the component of OpenStack. Uh, this was one CVE affecting Xenial, Bionic, and Disco. For anyone using the Ubuntu Cloud Archive, this vulnerability has also been fixed for the supported releases there. Uh, but in this case, I'm focusing on the standard Ubuntu Archive. So one CVE that was uh, related to API requests. So if you had an API request that ended in a fault condition uh, from an authenticated user, if you then made subsequent requests, it could end up returning uh, private information or sensitive information, in particular things like keys and other details. Uh, so this has been fixed just to make sure that those sorts of things are sanitized out of possible returns. Uh, this was first noticed actually when uh, someone you know, ran into a fault, they tried to hard re uh, reboot it, and that then turned into this second fault where essentially keys were being disclosed in subsequent uh, responses to further requests. As I say, so that has been fixed uh, in uh, the standard Ubuntu releases and in the Ubuntu Cloud Archive as well. We've got an update for CUPS, uh, the printing server. So two CVEs for the standard releases, Xenial, Bionic, and Disco. Uh, these are all related to the CUPS SNMP backend. So this is used to essentially discover features of your printer automatically via SNMP on your network. And to do this, it has to parse uh, ASN1 encoded data from the printer. Unfortunately, it was failing to do bounds checking on the things that it was decoding. And so as you can imagine, uh, it was resulting in a possible stack buffer overflow. Uh, so this could then result in you know, possible code execution, but at least likely a uh, crash, so it's not a service. The fix for this was pretty simple, just to add in bounds checking and to return errors in the cases that it was exceeding the bounds provided. Uh, this update, we've also included some other upstream fixes that uh, got rolled into upstream cups at the same time in particular for some potential security issues that haven't yet been assigned CVEs. Uh, these were things like uh, a CPU-based denial of service if the client unexpectedly disconnected and a few other issues as well. So they've all been fixed for CUPS. Up next, we've got an update for the Natural Language Toolkit, NLTK. So one CVE for Xenial, Bionic and Disco. Uh, this is a Python package and it downloads uh, natural language datasets as zip compressed archives. 
And like Salvatore on the Ubuntu security team, uh, discovered a variant of a zip slip vulnerability in this. And Mike has a great write-up of this on his own blog. Uh, I urge you, if you would like to know more details, to go check that out. But in particular, what they've done is they've essentially implemented uh, the zip extraction themselves by hand. And so you could have, again, relative paths that point outside of the current directory. And when it went to extract the uh, data set, you could then overwrite arbitrary files on the system. So this was fixed. The fix for this was actually very simple. It was just to use the inbuilt Python zip file handling to automatically unzip it. So yeah, an, another case where uh, it's not good to go and implement stuff by hand yourself if there is already an upstream implementation that you could take advantage of. All right, uh, next up is GIFLib. So this is a very popular library used for handling GIF images. This gets used by OpenJDK, so the whole Java stack, or FFmpeg, GStreamer, those sorts of uh, multimedia frameworks, and even the KDE desktop. So three CVEs that were fixed for Xenial, Bionic, and Disco. The first one was a divide by zero, so that would result in a crash and denial of service. There were also two different heap-based buffer overflows that were fixed. One had originally been fixed in Debian uh, years ago, because this is from 2016, but it seems the patch for that unfortunately got dropped in a related release from Debian. So uh, yeah, we, we missed that one, but we have repatched that in this release. So as I say, those three CVEs now resolved for GIFLib. Uh, two more updates to go. The first one is in Z standard. This is a compression library that is uh, released and maintained by Facebook for handling the Z standard compression algorithm. This is used again by a heap of other packages as a dependency that handle this uh, compression format. The vulnerability in this case was a race condition when using a single pass compression, which could allow an attacker to get an out of bounds write if the caller had provided a smaller output buffer than the recommended size. So essentially the GIFLib developers recommend uh, that you pass a buffer that I think is twice the input size to be decompressed. And if you had passed something smaller uh, and it wasn't doing appropriate bounds checks, it could overflow that buffer. So this has been fixed upstream and we've now merged in this fix to actually do bounds checking along the way. But yeah, if, you were, if you were an application that was using the recommended size, you wouldn't have been affected by this. And last up, we've got an update for OpenJPEG. Five different CVEs that were addressed for OpenJPEG in Bionic. Four of these were denial of service issues. Two of them were in uh, the bitmap handling BMP files. So the first one was a CPU-based denial of service that could occur uh, due to an inefficient algorithm implementation. And the second one was an integer overflow. So this could result in an out-of-bounds read, therefore uh, invalid memory you know, access, so you could get a crash and denial of service as a result. There was also a null pointer dereference that was fixed uh, when converting uh, images to PNM format and a divide by 0 02. The last issue fixed for OpenJPEG was a stack-based buffer overflow, uh, which could occur when handling JP3D encoded data. So as with most of these, you then get an out-of-bounds write to uh, memory on the stack, so you can potentially uh, corrupt the stack contents and put in whatever you want there. So uh, you know if it is outside of the mapped uh, memory regions, you'll get a segmentation fault, so a denial of service, but you could possibly get remote code execution as a result of this one as well. So they've all been fixed for OpenJPEG, and that takes us to the end of the roundup of vulnerabilities for this week. Next up, I've got a chat with Joe that we recorded on this recent Webmin backdoor that was disclosed at uh, DEF CON a couple of weeks ago. Hey, Joe. So uh, we're back together, just the two of us again this week. Uh, but we're going to have a talk about uh, some interesting stuff that's been in the news, in particular, this hack on Webmin. Yeah, so this one was pretty interesting because it wasn't, it's not like they found a random vulnerability in Webmin. 
Um, it was actually someone had compromised their build infrastructure a long time ago and put in place a, um, a backdoor. And then they have stayed in. They, I think they said they mitigated it, but not because they found it. They just changed something in the code. But then they migrated to a new um, a new box for their build. I guess it's only one box, a new build box, and then restored from backup and brought that um, brought that vulnerability back over. But before we get into like exactly how this happened, let's talk about what Webmin is. So if you haven't used it, the name should probably remind you of something like PHP My Admin. Um, it's it's one of the web based min tools, right? They're, they're not associated, but it's a web management console to do system administration tasks. Now you're thinking, we're Linux people, we can just do it on the command line. Not everybody wants to do that. And web consoles are awesome to automate things. But now you've built a web app, which is usually the surface which you're gonna be attacked on because it's the web. Um, but it's also adding users, deleting users, making changes to the system. So it's a incredibly privileged web application. It can run system level commands as root. So you've got this in place. It's it can do all sorts of things as, as a privileged user. So it is a good target for attack. And normally when we think of a good target for attack, you think of someone trying to buffer overflow, find one of the OWASP top 10, but this was a more sophisticated attack. Um, it's, uh, they were actually, from what I read online, a uh, 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 person by the name of Jamie Cameron, the author of Webmin, um, explained how the attack happened. And they did a really great write-up um, this is not a slight on Jamie at all. The software is really cool. And they did a great um, a great write-up of it, which shows a commitment to security. So kudos to Jamie Cameron and Webman. But he said this one really neat thing. They actually, after this was last year, they made this um, modification. Um, and they even modified the timestamps so it wouldn't show up in a Git diff, which I think is really cool. Oh, so they put it back in time or something so that, you know, a yeah. diff of recent stuff wouldn't show it. Yeah. So I think that's really neat. Um, and, but what else needs, so as I mentioned earlier, they migrated from an old build infrastructure to a new build infrastructure. So when you do that, you're not moving over var log, right? You're not moving over um, uh, all your old data. So they don't have the ability to go back and do forensics. Um, also, realistically, if this happened last year, I mean, what kind of forensics are you going to have at that point? Um, how many people are keeping logs for that much, that much time? Maybe if you're using like a like an elk stack, you might have that old data, but um, I'm not sure how you will find. Um, and this is interesting too. It didn't put a backdoor that could be just used by everybody. It put a backdoor that was only um, only available if you turned on one config setting, saying allow password resets. So. Um, it was a pretty, I think a pretty sophisticated attack and showed that someone knows build infrastructure, knows how Webmin was being used to cover all this up. You know, kudos to the attacker for yeah. making a really cool attack. But um, so, you know, and I, so I, just on yeah, that, so do you know, uh, so was this compromised? You know, did they uh, directly commit to the to Git repo or whatever, you know, source control management they're using? Or did they attack yeah, the build server directly to get access to that? It looked like they attacked the build server, dropped in the malicious files with the modified timestamps somehow. I'm not really yep. sure how. And then when they did their next build, they got pushed up. Uh-huh. Yep. Oh, neat. So that's, that is really clever. So 
Which just shows you, you know, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you hear me say over and over again, oh, it's not these advanced attacks. The most usually what we see are people with misconfigured passwords or um, applications that aren't hardened, et cetera, not following best practices. And I still believe that is a majority. But this is a really interesting corner case where it was one of those targeted attacks. Um, and it's not something we see every day. So I, I think you should take a moment to read up on this attack. Um, just because it's it's so interesting and lessons learned from it can be applied to your um, to your uh, CI/CD pipeline and maybe you can figure out how to present prevent something like this in the future. Yeah. So I'd be curious to find out if people who listen to this want to let us know on on Twitter. Um, are you using Webmin? I don't think it's not part of um, it's not part of main or universe, is it? No, it's not in too. Okay, cool. So it's not there. Um, but if you are using Webmin and you're just downloading it from source or something, let us know. Let us know how you're mitigating it. Now, you're running this tool. It's a web management console that can do tons of high-privileged things. Would you make it available to the outside world? I mean, that's yeah, that is the modern way of working, though, isn't it? Where um, in our DevOps world, where everyone is used to all their services being directly available across the internet, you know, everything is public-facing, it does make it... Um, sort of the standard that's how things get deployed but we see um it's not just webmin you know we see uh other kinds of um devops tools you know having vulnerabilities that are publicly exploitable all the time like the various jenkins plugins that always have vulnerabilities and that kind of thing and it um it really shows that these sorts of things are great tools for using but maybe they should be kept internal not facing external yeah you know if you're if you're a Let's say you're the you're a sysadmin. You've got one box running, and it's your personal web page or something, and you've got webmin configured on that. Well, don't open it to the outside world. Maybe make it only listen on localhost and do an SSH tunnel to connect to it and do that. You know, port forward over that um, and do it that way. If this is in your corporation, um, don't make it available to the whole company, right? Just make it available to your IS team or your DevOps team or something like that. Um, you know, we always say this security is multi-layered, you know, the whole defense defense in depth model. That is a uh, that is something we need to um, apply in everything we do. That's layered security. You know, maybe if this person had compromised the build system via logging in with SSH, they might have seen that it was a wrong IP address or something and had some monitoring for that. Maybe they brute forced it. Maybe they weren't, you know, maybe this uh, maybe they were running fail to ban. Um, I have no idea. I, I haven't read any of that. But um but those are things you, you should look at. You should be aware of what's happening on your system. Um, put in multiple layers of defense. You know, that's SSH um, uh, requiring keys, two-factor off, um, uh, firewalls, um, intelligent uh, IPSs, limiting your attack surface on, on installing applications you're not using, using things like unattended upgrades. All these things um, improve your overall security posture. And none of those are really big tasks, Right. You could spend a morning and configure all of those things and really improve your overall security. And I, I'm of the impression, I don't know about you, Alex, but I'd rather spend the time up front while I'm awake and it's during the day and I configure all these things than when you get hacked and you're working, you know, 300 hours to fix it. Yeah, the I totally agree with you. Uh, the hard part sometimes, though, I guess, is that people, you know, they are busy doing whatever work is apparently in front of them that needs doing. And so this sort of stuff where it's like, well, things already work. That's just extra work to make it harder. 
um, you know, it doesn't feel like that that is such a priority, but you're right. When the, when you do get hacked or you have some incidents, then all that other stuff that you thought was important that you had to do does go out the window because now you are doing incident response and mm-hmm. it is, uh, yeah, the time trade-off is totally worth it if you can do that up front. So as someone who has spent hours doing incident, huh, days, Yes, definitely days, possibly months, doing incident response, sitting in somebody's crappy data center, like huddled up behind their machine, trying to copy off, you know, a, a, a forensic image of some server over, um, over like a netcat connection. Um, I would say do it ahead of time. But to your point, people are doing these things; they're limited on time. That's where I think policy comes into play. You know, we are. If you're listening, to this is a good chance you're an engineer, and as engineers, we want to put in engineering controls, and that is. That is actually my preference as well. But you also need policy to back that up. So you need policy saying, hey, before we deploy something, it's scanned by your security group. It's scanned by IS. It's all this open port. You need to lock it down. You don't do that. You you enable these features, disable these features. And um, otherwise, we won't put it on the network, right? So we need that combination of policy and engineering controls is, is really how this type of incident, not, I'm sorry, not, not webmin, but um, where these type of um, compromised systems can, can be prevented with this combination of policy and engineering. Definitely. Cool. Awesome. Well, I think we talked about that one for quite some time. <laughs> um, uh, this was a, uh, uh, our first week back um, recording this after our last, um, our last podcast with Jamie from the security team. No, that was two weeks ago, wasn't it? It was, but um, yeah. 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 Um, and we got a lot of really great feedback on that. We're going to see if we can get Jamie to um, get on more of these. We definitely have more interesting people, not more than Jamie. We have more interesting people on the security team that, will, that are going to be on this coming up too. Awesome. I can't wait. Okay. Talk to everybody next week. So thanks again, Joe. It's always great talking to you. And that takes us to the end of this week's episode. As usual, if you want to get in contact with us, you can reach the team at security at ubuntu.com. Or if you want to chat with us in uh, real time, you can catch us in the Ubuntu Harden channel on the Freenode IRC network. Or if Twitter is more your thing, you can find us at Ubuntu underscore sec on Twitter. So thanks everyone again for listening for another week. It's been great doing this all for you. Can't wait to do it again next week. Uh, But until then, remember, keep calm and enable automated upgrades and I will speak to you again soon. Bye.